Hi, I'm Max Moynian. And I'm Henry Lin from Better World. Better World is an exploration of badass people doing really cool things. The more we know about this world, the better we can do in changing it. Well, so I think you're starting to see a lot of changes for the good. 15 years ago, there was a lot of lip service paid to green chemistry and doing things bio-based. But if you look downstream in the value chain, you know, the people we would sell our products to, it really was just sort of lip service. And I would say today that's really changed. There's been a lot of evidence of consumers demanding more sustainably produced products. And what you're starting to see happen now is the companies who supply to consumers are responding. They're saying, look, our customers are demanding the sustainability profile. We have to do something about it. And they're, they're making real commitments to do better. Max, the chemical industry, one of the great silent polluters of our times, over two gigatons of carbon dioxide per year, which apparently is the equivalent of about a little under than 50 million cars per year. In such companies as Dow, 3M, gotten caught by the EPA for releasing DuPont. things like Forever Chemicals, DuPont, um, you know, one of the big three. It's what is it? It's Dow, DuPont, and what's the other one? Um, here with us today, though, we have one of the seminal rock stars and answers um, <laughs> to this particular industry crisis. Um, uh, Matt, welcome to the pod. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Henry. Thank you, Max. Nice to be here. I think that we're going to do, this is the first time we're talking about chemicals, and I know it's not really a sexy topic, which is probably why you called it the silent, the silent killer. But fun fact, the, uh, the only AP class I took was AP chemistry. So maybe, maybe we're <laughs> going to do good, okay. Good for you. I'm told it's the only toxic relationship you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is a thigh slapper, Henry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Dad jokes all day. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you should say that because I, I can't tell you how many times I was told chemicals are not sexy. So during our <laughs> fundraising. But. Oh, they're a great time. Thankfully, we found a few who actually <laughs> do think it is. So. Max, tell us a little bit about DMC. Okay, so. DMC Biotechnologies has built a new kind of biomanufacturing platform that is transforming how the world produces chemicals. DMC's platform uses engineered microbes to sustainably and locally produce bio-based chemicals used in many market applications. Their use of renewable feedstocks and localized production improves both product sustainability and supply chain resiliency and their innovative platform enables rapid, predictable, and robust scale-up of a wide variety of chemical products. Dr. Matt Lipscomb is CEO and founder of DMC Biotechnologies. His career has included a range of development stages from early R&D to commercial deployment in a variety of sectors, including both industrial and pharmaceutical biotechnology. So that was a lot. Let's all take a deep breath and we're going to unpack it. Yeah, wow. We're going <laughs> to get in there. We're going to unpack it. I have no it. idea what you make. Good God, man. What's going yes. on over there? It's like a secret lab with Dexter. So like the chemicals, whether they're produced, you know, in the good way or the bad way, like what are some of these chemicals in our daily life from like brushing my teeth in the morning to what I eat to, I don't know, where are they in my day? Let's start there. Okay. So you mentioned brushing your, brushing your teeth, right? So 
one of the one of the chemicals that's in your toothpaste, right? That's in your mouthwash is a sweetener called xylitol. I always wondered how to pronounce that. It's the one that's X Y. <laughs> uh huh. That's that's exactly right. Okay, I know it. <laughs> xylitol. So it's a low calorie sweetener. It has a little bit of a minty taste to it as well, which is why it's in your toothpaste, right? And it's made by chemistry. So you you take a, a feedstock source, you do some thermal chemistry on it, uh, you add some hydrogen to it, you purify it, and that's how you get xylitol. That's one example. You know, I can hear some some road noise in the background. So another one that comes to mind is think about all the materials that go into your tires for your car or the rest of your car, right? The uh, the headlights the headlights are made out of things called PMMA, polymethyl methacrylate. Going back to the time of the pandemic, you know, we tried to go to the store and there were those big plastic screens in front of every single checkout counter. That was polymethyl methacrylate. So it's a very large volume chemical made from petroleum today. And those are things that we're- Well, petroleum's an easy one to call dirty and say like, <laughs> this is bad. There's gotta be a better solution. But can you tell us some of the common solutions that you guys provide now and is it just mostly swapping out um, uh, petroleum-based chemicals? Uh, what's wh Where's the cleanliness here? Yep. So we are starting with things that have markets that exist. So like your xylitols or your methyl methacrylates or some of these other categories. Because as it turns out, and as many companies are, are learning in very brutal truths, to create something that's entirely new provides not only technology risk, but it provides market risk. You have to build a market for something new. So no matter how wonderful that may be, that's a long, hard road. So we see opportunities to start by displacing uh, products that have markets that exist. So things like xylitol and methyl methacrylate and some of the amino acids that are used in uh, some of your dietary supplements and things like that. So what the additional values that we bring are things like you know, fermentation or the use of engineered microbes to make things that are of interest to everyday people. Uh, a, it's been done for, for generations, right? So if you're not familiar with how they make beer or wine, right, that's the canonical example, fermenting yeast to make ethanol or beer. We're taking that same idea using renewable feedstocks, but making other chemicals that we need and then we use in, in our life, right? So I was saying if there's three steps, um, inputs, process, and product, you're saying the first yep. two steps are different and the third one is exactly the same. Correct. So the inputs are different. The process is different. The product is identical. Correct. Oh, cool. I had to break it down. <laughs> also, <Sorry. laughs> who went to MIT? That one. Um, so yep. that eluded me um, to an extent, but just to simplify it, you know, for the guys watching football after this at home, you are able to replicate the same product outcome via a cleaner process and cleaner materials. But the challenge is that even though you have two products, one is the old thing that you've been using, good old reliable, um, uh, but shitty uh, for the environment in some capacity and or people, you know, potentially carcinogenic or whatever the case is. Um, and then you have, you know, your new substitute, but you have to convince the market that your new substitute is as good. And that's actually a pretty low hurdle. These turns out these products today, they have a set of specifications. And if you can show you meet those specifications, and if you can give it to the customer at a price point that's attractive, they're pretty excited about it. And if you also show them that, oh, well, there's less greenhouse gas emissions and that, oh, you, you don't have to solely rely on some random producer 
in some part of the world that may not be geopolitically friendly to us, that's an advantage too. So, um, right. I, I want to take it back to the to the inputs, the feed stocks, as you said. What were they when they were dirty, and what are they now? So, for the petroleum industry, so for the incumbents, it's petroleum. So you you take crude petroleum, you fractionate it into all sorts of things, and eventually process that into the vast majority of the materials and and things that surround our life today. So if I'm going to Whole Foods and I'm buying a toothpaste that's like looks like it's branded all healthy with xylitol, that could be a petroleum product. Uh, it certainly has petroleum components in it for sure. That's gross. <laughs> they shouldn't be allowed to say that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah no. I'm shocked. No, I think it's gross, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, 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 Everyone's yeah. agreed. Yeah. It's no, disgusting. Yeah. Okay, if I bought Vaseline, I would be very much like aware that I'm buying a petroleum product. But if I'm buying some fancy toothpaste at like Whole Foods that uses xylitol, well, I can't, I can't scrutinize the whole supply chain. And I didn't know xylitol was, was made with petroleum originally, you know, before DMC biotechnologies. So I'm just like, I'm a little bit in shock, I have to say. So I guess the question that comes from that is how many of these chemicals, which are, you know, bad or made from petroleum in some case, are embedded deeply into the products that we purchase regularly? I mean, uh, the vast majority of everything you buy. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, dun, dun. so yeah, you know, when you go and look through, you know, all these you know, ingredient lists and all these products, right? It's they're almost impossible to be made without without a lot of petroleum. Okay, so we have the original feedstock is petroleum and what? And I'm what like, do you mean, science what? teacher, and, explain and it what? to me. She's like, she's like, no, it's mostly, if not all, petroleum. <laughs> Let's go, plastics and everything. Is it something from a crop? Is it like, what are the inputs um, for the way that you would make? So the, the inputs that, that we would start with are uh, carbohydrates, right? So things that come from plant material. So in the U.S., think of sort of row, row crops, so corn or wheat. In the Europe, it's mostly wheat. Uh, in Southeast Asia, it could be cassava. There are a variety of other options depending on the geographic region. But basically taking plant biomass and then that gets deconstructed into its constituent components, mostly carbohydrates, and it's the carbohydrates that the bugs then consume and convert into the products that we make. What do you mean bugs? So our process uses fermentation. And so fermentation uses microbes. And in our case, we use an engineered microbe, something that we've highly optimized to do what we want it to do, which is make a product. So it's very analogous to how yeast to make beer or wine. So same thing. You you go to any of your local microbrews uh, or your distilleries, right? And they take grain and they process it. They feed it to yeast and the yeast make the ethanol. And then they, they package it and sell it to you. I was picturing like little flies with like microchips in them. <laughs> I know that's not what it is. But you said bugs. And, I was like, hmm. and so can you tell us why at the stage of processing fermentation, is it so much more efficient to ferment versus the traditional route? Uh, it's not that it's more efficient because, you know, as it turns out, the petroleum industry's had a 170-year head start. So they're pretty darn efficient today. Okay. Um, but it's about doing things very differently. So starting with a renewable feedstock, 
doing it in a way that's you know efficient in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and energy usage, but also doing it in a way that's much more regional, right? So the thing about a petroleum-based process, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a chemical refinery, but they're massive. They're the size of medium-sized cities, right? With about that same population of people working in them. So to do that, you have to get to massive scale, and it means they're located in sort of random places, um, and there's not many of them. But if you go to a bio-based economy, the feedstock sources are much more regional, right? You can only get so much of a bio-based feedstock in a region before the shipping becomes prohibitive. And so the fermentation scales quite nicely with that, right? So you can mm. locate manufacturing assets close to where the feedstock is and close to where the customers who buy the product are. So you're, it, there's this move away from you know, the past 20 years was globalization, right? It was make things as cheap as we possibly can, which meant most everything got shipped to China. Well, as we learned in the pandemic, as it turns out, having everything you buy come from China has its drawbacks, right? And for right. critical things like food and the materials that we need for our cars and our cell phones and everything else, not only is that you know, suboptimal in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions, but it's suboptimal from a supply chain, right? So how many of your right. friends tried, tried to buy a car during the pandemic? I looked at it briefly and the guy laughed at me. <laughs> he was like, yeah, come back in eight months and we might have something. Well, that's fine if it's your new sneakers or maybe your new car or something else. But when that goes to components like the food that we eat or the materials that we buy you know, for medical equipment or you know, the, the chips that go into, you know, the um, microprocessor chips that go into everything, from medical equipment to cars to, to phones, right? It turns out there's a better way to do things. And that's what we're trying to achieve is that we need to optimize supply chains, not just for the lowest possible cost to the producer, but we need to optimize supply chains for resiliency mm -hmm. and for greenhouse gas reductions, right? right. And going through a bio-based route provides one solution to do that. When you were explaining this, I had a, just a visual in my head that I really liked of, like, let's say right now we have... Cancer Alley. So the Gulf of Mexico, yep. Louisiana, where all of the oil pipelines get routed. And then you have these mid-sized, city-sized chemical, petrochemical manufacturing places. And like, I'm calling it a sacrifice zone. And I'm calling that part of the Mississippi Cancer Alley because there's so much toxicity there that every, like, and the, the cancer rates are so high. It's, it's depressing, frankly. And when you're looking at it this way, not only do you not have these massive scale places where we have to sacrifice the, the livelihood and the people there, like you have smaller places that also aren't toxic. <laughs> so yeah. that's really cool. It leads to my question of, is there any byproduct? Is there any, is there any sort of pro-con we're weighing here of, of doing fermentation with bio feedstocks? Uh, for the most part, there are, there are no byproducts that come anywhere close to that level of hazard. So if you think about the chemical industry, most of the processing they do is really high temperature, really high pressure, which means hazardous. And if you sort of look back in history 50 years ago, there wasn't an emphasis on safety and nobody, nobody cared about pollution, right? There was the whole movement through the 70s of, well, you know, it took acid rain for people to really actually put a, you know, put some regulatory controls in, in some of these industries, right, to, to the extent that they exist today. But the nice thing about working with bio is we don't have those type of intermediate. Most of what we're talking about is fairly benign. It's, you know, sort of low pressure, low temperature. 
It doesn't go through hazardous intermediates. When we look at sort of the effluent or the things that come off of our process, water is one thing that comes out, but we can actually recycle most of that. And to the extent that it goes back out into the environment, it's typically put out cleaner than when it comes in. Cool. Right. So it, it, it's a much more holistic solution. You know, other byproducts, for example, tend to be things like inorganic salts. So these are things like boss salts that 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 heavy stuff that you goes back underground. Uh, no, more like things that would be used for soil amendments. So like ammonium sulfate salt, which is really helpful for uh, an ammonium source for plants. Oh, so sort of inorganic salts that are non-toxic, that don't have anything else in them, but that can be used to help you know, support the crops in terms of routine agriculture. So there's no smokestack spewing toxic crap in the air at your, <laughs> no. at your refinery. No. Well, you don't call no, them the, refineries, the, do you? The Lorax lives there. Apparently. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. No, no, no toxic smokestacks. So that's awesome. Well, so you had mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, scale is part of the challenge here. Um, yeah. and, and when you think about it, that of course makes sense because you're like, hey, chemicals now are in everything. And so we have to ostensibly place, replace the building blocks for everything. How are you guys planning on achieving scale? What does the growth plan look like for you guys? So that's a great question. Um, and that's actually one of the big problems that our field has faced for decades now. Historically, it's been really hard to scale. And I would say where we're differentiated is we're the only technology in the field that was specifically designed and made to scale. That's what our technology does, right? It, it addresses that problem in a way that no one else has done. And we've now been able to prove that in a variety of different examples, right? So we've de-risked the technology piece. And now the next thing that we're working on is, is getting those actual physical assets that we need, getting, the, getting to those plants, right? Those manufacturing plants. So, right. and right now... The nice thing about that, when we think about sort of risks going forward, our technology uses sort of off-the-shelf equipment, right? So we're not designing new reactors or new things that have a bunch of risk with it. All of this stuff exists today. Today, it truly is just a financial risk, which is real given the current economic climate that we're living in today. But if you can narrow those risks to just financial, that's much easier to address than if you have financial and technical and scale and kind of all these other things. So... Um, so we've sort of chipped away at those risk buckets such that now it's just, you know, getting the capital to build the plant and put the steel in the ground. And where are your plants today? Uh, so we've worked with third parties to date to de-risk the technology. Most of those have been in Europe and we're making plans now for deployment in the U.S. and Europe. So we're not actually manufacturing at scale. We've just done the technology de-risking at third parties. So where we didn't have to build the asset just to prove that it works. So that's also been able to get us through the customer validation cycles, right? So you make enough of a product that a customer can test it uh, in enough volume in their application. Interesting. So I'm trying to understand the unit economics of uh, your scale, like how long it takes, you know, because in my mind, you're like, oh, it's easy as brewing beer and I just got to get to the breweries and you know, <laughs> maybe open a couple myself. Um, it's true, like booze bag answer. You hear fermentation, you're like beer. Uh, so it, it, does it take a matter of years in order to, you know, um, create your manufacturing infrastructure? Does it take a matter of months? Like what does it look like, you know, over the long term? What, what, what do you anticipate? Yeah. So if you had to start from scratch, you know, a, a 
you know, empty plot of land, uh, right. it'd probably take it'd probably take about two years to get it all done, and that's that's pretty typical within within any industry at this point. But the nice thing is it can be replicated in different geographies pretty quickly. Is it easier for you guys to just take over existing infrastructure and you know insert your process, make it cleaner? In yes, it is, and we have worked in existing assets. I'd say the other challenge that the industry faces today is there's simply just not a lot of availability. Um, so there are assets that exist and they tend to be fully occupied. So that's one of the things we've been looking high and low for quite some time to try to find one of those assets that may be underutilized and neither us nor really anyone else in the field has, you know, has found those opportunities. So where's the breaking point? Is it like, is it a consumer demand thing? Is it a regulation thing? How does the shift all of a sudden happen away from bad to good? Well, so I think you're starting to see a lot of changes, right, for the good. You know, so I've been in this industry for quite some time. And 15 years ago, there was a lot of lip service paid to green chemistry and doing things bio-based, right? There was a lot of activity. But if you look downstream in the value chain, you know, the people we would sell our products to, it really was just sort of lip service. And I would say today that's really changed. So I can give you a few examples. So there's been a lot of evidence of consumers demanding more sustainably produced products and willing to pay more for them in some cases. And what you're starting to see happen now is that the the companies who supply to consumers are responding. They're saying, look, our customers are demanding this this sustainability profile. We have to do something about it. And they're they're making real commitments to do better, right? And you can this is public. You, You can go out and look, right? Right. But just, just to sort of acknowledge some of the people that we're directly involved with, right? Investors in DMC, if you go look at, you know, Michelin or Solvay, you know, one of the largest chemical companies in Europe, right? Or SCG, a very large chemical company in Southeast Asia, you can go and read about their very high level goals. And 10 years ago, if we were having this conversation, I would have been very cynical, <laughs> right? And probably rightly so. Right. But I've, I've had enough sneak peeks into the inside of, of these players now that I can say it's real. That for at least these companies, the ones that we're interacting with, they're putting real money and real efforts towards doing things better. And we can be a part of that solution. And so I think that's part of what's driving change. And then, I, so that's on the company side. And then on the regulatory side or on the government side, you're starting to see real change there too, right? So the IRA or the CHIPS Act or the Bipartisan Infrastructure yes, Act in the U.S. That was my next question. How has the IRA supported your work? Uh, IRA is still a little early. Um, we are all desperately trying to figure out how this is going to get rolled out. And I think we're still a couple months before those things get rolled through committee and, and various agencies. So stay tuned. We're all waiting with bated breath. But if what they've done... Just now, in the last month or so, they are now beginning to roll out some of the programs and make awards from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. So that was six, eight months ahead of ahead of where we are for IRA. And if that's any indication, it's real, right? They're talking billions of dollars in those programs already allocated towards batteries and factories and chips, which is great. That's that's really great to see. So hopefully, we'll see the same from the IRA in the coming quarter or so. I think the other real difference that's happening, um, like, so in Europe, there's a, a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So this is really the, the first implementation of a carbon tax. 
the acknowledgement that just because you make something in China and they don't care about pollution doesn't mean you should be able to import it into Europe at no cost, right? So it really is a leveling of, of true costs on a product as it comes across the borders. And there's actually a futures market on what that price would be. And the last time I looked at it, it was something like, I don't know, 100, 100 bucks a ton or something of CO2, which is, which is real, right? That would finally level the playing field from the cheap and dirty products that come in from polluting countries and really give a leg up to manufacturers who can demonstrate that, yeah, in fact, we are doing it better and there's a real cost for that. So, so without that kind of tax, do you think that you would be able to be cost competitive with the old, the old way of doing things? So we are definitely focusing on being cost competitive without any type of green premium or, uh, or tax, carbon tax. So we see those as upsides down the road, but we're not banking on it. So that sort of gives right. you an idea of we're planning for you know, a much more aggressive scenario because we want to deliver on that opportunity independent of any regulatory environment. And what we talked about, how many chemicals are you producing right now? We have our, our lead product is actually an amino acid that's used in, uh, well, the single largest volume application is in detergents. So if you have any detergents in your home today, dish or laundry, you have this amino acid derivative in your product. So this, is, this was added to detergents about six or eight years ago. Whether it's Tide or seventh generation. Any of it. Okay. Yeah. Or, or whether it's uh, actual liquid crappy tide yep. or like the good like public goods and all these other companies well, use it too. Yeah. Yep. No, no, no. I mean, it, this whole detergent thing is like a, another, you know, wonderful war and conflict where uh, they talk about like what the good chemicals versus the bad chemicals are. Um, yep. But this is a cleaning agent, which is functionally one of the good chemicals, which you would see in the more eco-friendly solutions, which are in the market today. Yep. Yep. Okay. And so, so this is a piece of that. So one of the ingredients in your detergent is a component that deals with essentially hard water, right? So hard water has like salts in it. Can you define hard water for our audience, please? It typically has a lot of minerals in it. Um, so it's not unhealthy, but it just, it has, so if you go into your, your kitchen or your bathroom and you see a lot of sort of white stuff built up around it, those are just minerals, just inorganic salt minerals. Uh, again, it's not unhealthy. It just, sometimes you can feel it in your skin or on your soap. It just has an effect on the chemistry of how it works. And so one of the ingredients that they put in detergents is to help address that. So the chemical name for it is a chelate, or you can think of it as a water softener. So the way it used to be done was the detergent makers used to just use a compound called phosphate. And the reason they stopped, they were forced to stop. And so Max, this goes back to your questions around those dead zones. Right, so you can actually go and look at this now. The uh, NOAA, the, you know, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, actually has really nice imagery of this. There are dead zones at the Gulf of Mexico from really the algal blooms, right? And it's things where no fish grow because the algae, the algae have consumed all the oxygen in the water, and so the fish can't breathe. So one, the two leading reasons for that were runoff from agriculture phosphate and nitrogen runoff and the phosphate and nitrogen feed the algae. The second main driver of that was phosphates and detergents because phosphates don't get cleaned up. It's too small. It just passes right through. And so they accumulate in the waterways. So and, I do a load and, of laundry with Tide and that wastewater from my laundry load gets dumped and it's creating a dead zone. Uh, used to. 
Used to. But okay. with the help of biotechnology. They swapped it out with the water softener. With the help of biotechnology, we're providing a biodegradable solution so that compound doesn't stick around in the waterways. Well, so, but it's not in the past. Like anyone that, they're, they're, the bad stuff still exists and still gets used by most people, no? Tide is still bad. <laughs> Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, they, they've, they, they've replaced it. They've okay, replaced okay. it with, with this product. Okay. So, all right. At least, Good at least know. in the U S and at least in the U S and Europe. Well, what I'm really interested in from what you're saying, and this is just the level of where my head was at, like mind blown all the time. Got to just get used to that being life because I thought, you know, I'm using my seventh generation or my branch basics. And these are a hundred percent bio like plant hundred percent plant powered is what it says. Right. Like, but I never consider all the way down the supply chain that in the making of those plant detergent ingredients, that there might be something bad happening there. So like, I would love, frankly, I think people should be marketing more if they're, if they're using your chemicals, because it's just a whole nother level of thinking that I didn't think about. I would totally agree. I, I would say the marketing people tend to get very far out ahead of their skis yeah. on, on what they're claiming. Uh, and as I've dug in, I haven't looked at it. It's any a really nice specific- way to say that people greenwash. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I haven't looked at any of the specific examples you've given, but I've looked in other areas. And the more I dig, the more I learn. And I agree with you. My mind is blown. Like, I had no idea this is how things were made. This is horrible. We, we have to be able to do better. Right. So. I want to, I love to just get like the most tiny bit personal after we've heard about someone's amazing journey and work. And, you know, you are an expert here. And what, at what point in your life, in your journey, did the environment and climate become a piece of your passion and your work? And like, Tell us a little bit about that because I just, I see so many people that are in some industry that they think I have nothing to do with the environment and I can't help. And they really don't see that, that there's something everyone can do. So I want to get inspired by you, Matt. Not that I'm not already. (laughs) I mean, the man saw that tide was bad. It's got to go. I mean, it's, let's also tide is still bad people. There's a lot of crap in there, but um, branch basics, I, I'm branch basics all the way. Branch, branch well, honestly, now I want Matt to vet branch basics for me, but well, that's another time. That's another branch time. Branch basics episode <laughs> yeah. seven. Let's go. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you may not have looked at my bio, which is, which is fine, but I'm actually a certified mountain guide. So I spent a lot of time in the mountains. So rock climbing, skiing, you know, ice climbing, alpinism. Uh, that's always been a big part of, of who I am and, and what I do to, to recharge. And, and it's your LinkedIn I, background. It's, it, it's in there. Yeah, yeah. So, so the nice thing about that is it's given me a real, Matt, the audience doesn't have seven tabs open right now about you. That's why I'm trying to feed I'm trying to feed them. <laughs> Which is, we got to give it visual, right? They, they, yeah, they yeah. can't see the, the Alpine imagery all, all yeah, over yeah. your name on the internet. Yep. So I, I think one of the, here's a story that really sort of drove home the impact of climate change for me. So quite a few years ago, I, I did a trip on skis. Uh, I was in Switzerland and the, the Alpine countries, so France and Italy and Switzerland have a remarkable mountain culture, right? And they've built all these huts over the last hundred 
20 years to enable people to go into the mountains and be quite civilized, right? So they stock these huts and hut is a misnomer. These are lodges, right? Built of stone, climate controlled. They fly in wine and beer on helicopters, right? It's <laughs> as far as outfitism goes, it's pretty cush. Um, <laughs> but long story short, to get to one of these huts, this is one that has been there for 120 years, sitting literally on top of one of the largest glaciers in Switzerland, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The hut was built a long time ago. It actually burnt down once. And about 80 years ago, they rebuilt it on the same site. When they initially built the lodge, you could step off the glacier and walk, you know, a couple 20 yards to, to the you know, porch of the hut, right? I was there maybe a decade ago. And the glaciers had receded so far that there was now this giant rock cliff sitting in front of front of the lodge. And in classics with style, uh, they go in and they bolt in this metal staircase, you know, to the rock face. So you can you know, walk up the stairs to get to the lodge from where the glacier sits today. And they had installed plaques at various locations as you're walking up these stairs that says, this is where the glacier was, you know, 80 years ago, 60 years ago, 40 years ago. And it was staggering, right? I had to walk up. I got the chills. I had to walk up like 400 stairs to get to where the lodge is, right, today. It just sort of really drove home just the, the magnitude of this challenge and the change that's happening, you know, in our lifetime. We're going the wrong way. Yeah. Going the wrong way. Matt, um, uh, thank you for sharing the story. Um, it sounds like we as consumers have to be mindful and continue to put pressure on um, purchasing products and supporting companies that are using the right chemicals, using the right components and using the right materials, because these things are so deeply ingrained down the supply line uh, yep. that it's-, it's We have to demand nuts. supply chain transparency. Supply chain transparency. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I, I, what, and now more than ever, they're listening, which is great. So keep it up. I wanna make sure we give you a plug, maybe give a shout out to your website or your Instagram handle. Yeah, uh, definitely check us out at dmcbio.com for sure. And there's a bunch of leaks on there as well. So Good holistic chemical leaks, people, right? <laughs> Good stuff. Matt, thank you for joining us and really, really appreciate the work that you're doing and the insight into how deep this rabbit hole goes. Thank you, as always, to Max for pointing out obscure climate catastrophes that I weren't aware of, um, Cancer Alley being the newest one, where the cancer rates are some 50% higher than uh, the rest of the nation. That's horrific. I, would, I mean, I'm going to have to also just add that that area is predominantly black and brown. Surprise, right. surprise. Right. So shocker. Not. Right. Yeah. Um, it's really uh, unfortunate. Climate justice, racial justice at the intersection, as Max is wont to always say. Thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us for yet another episode of Better World. Please join us again in the future to find out just how much crap the petroleum industry has gotten us into. I am Henry Lin. I'm Max Moynian. And this has been Dr. Matt Lipscomb. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Henry. And thank you, Max. What a time. I've enjoyed <laughs> our time, time today. <laughs> <laughs>